Well, good morning again, everyone. Welcome so much to St. Paul's Blur Street. Whether you're joining us online or in person, we're really glad that you're here. The truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. Assassinated U.S. President James Garfield. Without truth, there can be no reconciliation. Chief Darlene Bernard of Lenox Island First Nation, PEI. Before the truth can set you free, you need to figure out which lie is holding you hostage. Anonymous. I believe that following Jesus is the best way to change the world. Tim and I were privileged to, in July, spend two weeks in Canterbury in the UK at the 15th Lambeth Conference, which the Archbishop of Canterbury, our spiritual leader, uh, hosts approximately every 10 years for the 700 plus bishops of the Anglican Communion and their spouses. And it's to pray and read the Bible together and to discern the future direction of our global Christian family. It was an extraordinary experience. Uh, hearing about the cyclones that wipe out all the churches in Madagascar twice a year. How the people in South Sudan have to cut down trees to burn them into charcoal to sell in order to feed their children. To the underground churches in Iran and the persecuted ones in Pakistan. And I could go on. But one of the many things that united us in this global gathering was our agreement that following Jesus is actually the best way to solve each of those problems. From the climate emergency to political divisions, from gender-based violence to personal greed. Following Jesus, best way to change the world. Because the forgiveness of sins that Jesus brings deals with the root cause of every single problem that we face, the problem under the problems. Not only a global, but also the problems we all have in our homes, at our places of work. Today is our penultimate week, working our way through the Apostles' Creed this summer, that ancient summary of the Christian faith and, and what it means for our daily lives. And today we come to one of the shortest lines of the Creed, the forgiveness of sins. And this line from the creed exposes the lie that holds us hostage. The truth that will make us miserable at first, but will help us tackle every problem we have. I'm not exaggerating, and I'm prone to exaggeration. It is the lie that the world is divided into good people and bad people. You know, it's the lie that sustains the entire Disney empire who couldn't produce a single movie without good guys and bad guys. And as long as this lie operates, that some people are basically good, which always conveniently seems to include the person who's thinking along these lines, and that there are other people who are basically bad, then we will never fully see the need for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, certainly, actually, no need for the Christian faith, let alone the church, the Christian community that Tyler walked us through last Sunday. And we will be blind to the solution for our troubles. G.K. Chesterton was a famous British journalist and playwright of the early 20th century. And the newspaper, The Times of London, asked several prominent writers, including Chesterton, for short essays that they were going to publish on the topic, 
what is wrong with the world? Chesterton sent in the shortest essay and the most to the point. Dear sirs, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. According to the Christian faith, the world is not divided into good people and bad people. We are what is wrong with the world, but we struggle with the idea that we're all sinful because that word sin now has such negative cultural baggage, partly because it's been misused by the church down the centuries to exclude and abuse. And this is because we often don't understand what the Bible teaches, whether we're spiritually searching here today or we've been learning how to follow Jesus for years. You see, the Christian faith, which is encapsulated in the Apostles' Creed, is incredibly realistic. No heads in the sand. And it tells us that the problems of the world, they're not like out there. In 1886, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote the classic, The Strange Case of uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll uh, comes to realize that he is, and I quote, an incongruous compound of good and evil. And he thinks his bad nature is holding back his good nature. And while he aspires to do more things in life, he just can't follow through. Familiar much? So he comes up with like a magic potion uh, to separate out his two natures. And what he hopes is that in the daytime, this magic potion will allow his good nature to come out so he can accomplish in life all that he wants to do. Problem is, uh, it totally backfires. And one night when he takes the magic potion, his bad side comes out way more evil than expected. Edward Hyde, who Mr. Jekyll turns into at night, is so named not because he's disfigured, but because he's hidden. Edward Hyde. That's the lie. It's the lie that holds us hostage that the world is divided into good people and bad people, and, and Stevenson saw through it. And he saw that we are all, every single one of us, a kind of incongruous mixture of good and holy desires and evil and destructive ones. We might be able to hide it from ourselves, but denying the truth doesn't change the facts. And God is not fooled. Our reading today uh, from 2 Corinthians, uh, St. Paul was an early Christian writer, and this is his second letter that he wrote to a gathering of Christians in Corinth in, in what is ancient Greece. And it starts with this line. What we are is plain to God, and I also hope it's plain to your conscience. This, this biblical insight that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which fascinatingly Stevenson seemed to grasp, it's multi-layered. So like the first layer is really simple. It's that we um, are self-absorbed and we lack willpower, right? Like I text while I walk. I can't even remember to bring my recyclable cup every single time I purchase coffee and I buy disposable fashion. Which one is the real me? Is it the Jenny who believes the climate emergency is real? Or is it the Jenny who can't even make the smallest sustained change to her lifestyle? It's 
It's actually pretty dysfunctional. Which one is the real me? And, and this is all our daily stuff, right? Big and small, it plagues all of us of missing the mark, of not following through. But there's a much deeper layer, which we have talked about before this past year, but it, it bears repeating. Not only because we have new people who are spiritually searching at St. Paul's every Sunday, but because it's so subtle, it's so pernicious. The primary way that the Bible talks about sin is not simply the doing of bad things, although that is talked about, it is serious, but rather it's the taking of good things and giving them ultimate significance. The Bible calls these idols. Anything or anyone who takes the place of God at the center of our lives. Obviously destructive things, they don't become idols. No one wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I really got to find a way to weave uh, porn and cocaine into my daily, uh, my habits. Like nobody says that. It's when our children's academic, athletic, or social success takes priority over their spiritual nurture. It's when our desire for financial security takes precedence over our generosity and financial sacrifice for the refugee. It's when our search for identity leads to sexual license, emotional neediness, or becoming a relationship doormat. Whenever we build our purpose, our hope uh, for ourselves or our children on anything other than what Jesus Christ brings, the Bible calls that out. That's sin. And the problem is that what we center our lives on, we've got to have it. And if we lose it, we feel crushed. It enslaves us. It controls us. It means psychological death. The Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. I said at the beginning that I believe following Jesus is the best way to change the world. Because the forgiveness of sins that Jesus brings, it's not only the thing that deals with the root cause of all the problems of the world, the problem under the problem, the Jekyll and Hyde human heart. And forgiveness always requires sacrifice. It always requires suffering. Like when someone's wronged you, maybe they dented your car, or they slept with your girlfriend, or they gossiped behind your back, or they let you down, or they broke, their, uh, broke your heart. The only way for life to be worth living again is for you, the one who's been wronged, to absorb the pain. <laughs> Anything else becomes some form of revenge. Writer Anne Lamott put it like this, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. Forgiveness is always a kind of costly suffering. This is what Jesus did for us on the cross, absorbing in his body, in his soul, all the sinful and destructive choices, both trivial and serious, that I make day in and day out, and it crushed Jesus so it doesn't have to crush me. This knowledge, that our sins don't have the final word in our lives, they, they don't need to define our reputation, and that we can be made new. 
As Paul wrote, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. This is the truth that can set us free. And we open that path to freedom every Sunday morning when we have a time of confession together as a community. As writer Frederick Beekner puts it, to confess your sins to God is not to tell God anything God doesn't already know. Until you confess them, however, they are the abyss between you. When you confess them, they become the Golden Gate Bridge. It's this truth, knowing that we're so sinful that Jesus had to die for us. This is what frees us from pride and from self-absorption, self-centeredness, and from incorrectly diagnosing every single problem out there as somebody else's fault. It helps us take responsibility as adults, and it prevents us from being racist, sexist, homophobic, any other version of looking down on other people. Because our sinfulness prevents us from feeling superior, and it releases us from the corrosion of personal arrogance. You know, like the need to win every argument, like always have the last word? This truth about the forgiveness of our sins, it also affirms us, it encourages us like no positive thinking ever can. To know that I am so precious, so valued, that Jesus would suffer for me, to know that I'm that precious, I'm that valued, that affirms me, that encourages me out of any self-hatred I might have, any, any guilt that might burden me, any sense of inferiority that might hold me back in relationships, any sense of inferiority that might hold you back in your career. The forgiveness of our sins, it liberates us both from any sense of inferiority, but it also rescues us from any sense of superiority. This psychological and emotional freedom, that's the solution to all the problems that plague us. The ones we have right here in the heart of the city, but also in South Sudan. Paul writes, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against us and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. You can't give what you don't have. When we've been reconciled to God, healed of inferiority, right? Thinking you're too dirty or guilty or messed up to be in relationship with God. When, when you're healed of that and you're healed of superiority, thinking you've got it all together, you got enough money, enough friends, family. You actually don't really need God in any functional sense. When we've been healed of both the inferiority and the superiority, through the forgiveness of our sins, then we're reconciled to God. Then we actually have something to give to the problems out there. Then we can be ambassadors for Christ. This is the ministry of reconciliation that God has given to us. Following Jesus, best way to change the world. as a community of forgiven sinners, the church, a community of people learning how to follow Jesus, the church. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit to always be people who take the initiative 
to heal, to reconcile, in a friendship, in a marriage, in a fraught political situation, in the climate emergency, the refugee crisis, in humble knowledge of our forgiven status, to give of our time and emotional vulnerability, to have those hard conversations. All of us are avoiding some conversation with somebody. But you have them already knowing the truth about ourselves. To give of our money, knowing that we're so precious in God's eyes that our security doesn't rest in our savings anyway. It's the same Holy Spirit that fuels our Anglican sisters and brothers around the globe to be peacemakers and reconcilers, to start soccer teams with a mixture of Christian and Muslim teams in South Sudan, to break the cycle of war, to be the Anglican Archbishop that Tim and I met from a country that will remain nameless today, who when he's invited to come and speak to the country's president about how to heal the divisions that are tearing that country apart, this Archbishop, he sends his wife and his sons into hiding a week before he has that meeting because he doesn't know what's going to happen after he tells the truth to the president. It's the same Holy Spirit right here this morning fueling us, forgiven sinners, to pick up the phone or send that text this afternoon. Fill in the blank. Let's be reconciled. Thanks be to God. Amen.